You're listening to The Driven, the podcast that gives you the news and the views, the ins and the outs on electric vehicles. The Driven is presented by Giles Parkinson, the editor of Renew Economy and The Driven websites. And it's brought to you by the NRMA, who are leading the charge in helping Australians transition to electric vehicles. By rolling out Australia's largest regional fast charging network, along with advocacy and education, the NRMA is making the electric transition more accessible for more people. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of The Driven Podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the founder and editor of The Driven, along with its associated websites, Renew Economy and One Step Off The Grid. And uh, joining me, as usual, is uh, the lead reporter for The Driven, um, Dan Bleakley. How are you, Dan? Going very well, thanks, Giles. Good, good to be here. Yeah, now you've been up all night. Uh, well, not all night, but I mean up late last night. Um, interviewing a special guest from the US, um, Corey Steben from Munro and Associates. Um, actually, before I get you to introduce that, I'm just going to tell uh, the listeners that um, we'll have this interview first, and then we'll have a bit of a discussion later on about some of the other big news around the place, and particularly the um, the pricing for the new MG and Tesla's big charging win in the in the US. Um, um, and some crazy things happening in the Queensland grid and, um, as usual, in Toyota. But anyway, Daniel, Corey Stephen from Munro & Associates, why, why, why do you want to interview him? Yeah, well, it was a fascinating fascinating chat um, last night, Giles. And um, so basically, Corey's the president of a company called Munro & Associates, which was founded by Sandy Munro. And some of our listeners probably heard, heard of Sandy Munro. So Munro and Associates are automotive consultants and generally what they do is when, when a company brings out a new vehicle, they'll buy one of, the, one of the cars, take it into their workshop, tear it down or strip it down into its com- component level and then um, analyse each component, figure out the materials, figure out how it's made and the costs. Then they'll put all that into a report and they'll sell it to... Um, to to, their, to um, automotive competitors, basically car, different car companies, so that they can see what the leading cutting-edge technology is of the time. And basically, they were working in the traditional automotive industry for for three decades in in Michigan, in in the U.S. And then in 2018, they got a hold of a, a Tesla Model 3, so one of the very first. Um, I think it was one of the first thousand that came off the production line. And their team of engineers tore it down. Um, and then Sandy Munro, who's the, who's the founder, he went on to this program called AutoLine After Hours, which is kind of like a traditional car uh, program where, where people talk about the, the automotive industry. And, yeah, he basically was, was telling, telling the, the, the hosts of the program how, some of the incredible technology that was in the, in the Tesla Model 3. And this is kind of a seminal moment when um, the legacy automotive industry was, was introduced to, to Tesla. Well, yeah, that's, um, that's a, it's, it's a fantastic story. Look, let's, um, um, without further ado, let's have a listen to your interview with uh, Corey Stephen from Munro & Associates. All right, so today on the Driven Podcast, we have uh, Corey Steuben, who's the president of Munro & Associates. Welcome to the podcast, Corey. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be here today. Yeah, fantastic. So um, I'm sure that a lot of our, um, a lot of the Driven viewers and, and listeners are probably familiar with, with who you are and who Munro & Associates are, but there's probably a few 
um, a few that aren't aware. So we might just start off by talking a little bit about the history of Munro and Associates. So you guys are based in um, in Michigan, so you're kind of in the American heartland of the auto industry. Um, and yeah, do you want to take us through what Munro and Associates do? Sure. Yeah. So Monroe and Associates was founded in 1988 by Sandy Monroe. It started off as a small consulting firm with him and a few other people, but we've had a huge presence in the automotive industry and it's kind of grown steadily to where we're at roughly 100 employees now. And where we really made our mark is studying electrification and fuel economy enablers and automobiles. So back in 2010, we contributed uh, tremendously for developing the CAFE standards in a combination with another company called FEV for the EPA. But then uh, as we approached 2014, 2015, 2016, 2017, we started to get a lot more press. We did a BMW i3 teardown that we were, you know, that was kind of in the public. And then Sandy uh, went on auto line after hours. And really that was where he kind of came on the scene with Sandy and Tesla because he criticized the Model 3 heavily for its fit and finish and its build quality. We, we received a Model 3 at the end of 2017 and it was a very low VIN. I think it was VIN number 1100. So in terms of, of production, that's like infancy. So Sandy was very critical and we got a lot of backlash from the Tesla community. But once we got into what was underneath the skin, uh, we started saying how amazing the high voltage architecture and the thermal system and whatnot. So from that point on, um, the recognition of Sandy Monroe and the Monroe name has really grown. Um, we then started our own YouTube channel in 2020, uh, creating about 480 videos since uh, April 1st of 2020, uh, almost 60 million views. I think close to a billion impressions and then all of the the media coverage that we get from our teardowns. So a lot of people know us from the YouTube channel, but we are an engineering firm that does cost analysis. So we sell reports on our vehicles we tear down and it's tremendously expensive to acquire the cars, hire the people to do the analysis. So we're an engineering firm first and then we also have other industries as well. We su support the defense industry, aerospace, medical, and consumer goods. So, yep. So, and I've been the president of Monroe since January of 2020, right before the pandemic. And I've been with the company for 18 years supporting Sandy Monroe. And um, it's been quite a wild ride. And now I get uh, the opportunity to talk to people like yourself and other podcasters all over the world. We get invitations to uh, different plants. Sandy and I have been to Giga Texas twice. We've been to Giga Berlin. We were at the VinFast factory in Vietnam. Um, so the types of people that we get to meet and the the uh, plants that we get a tour and the information we're exposed to really helps solidify our opinions. Uh, you know, out on the out in the world today. Yeah, it's it's been it, it's really incredible. I think like. Um to watch the the electric vehicle revolution play out and to see to see the technology um, that Tesla is building and then to have um, people like yourself who are able to communicate that so effectively um, have your YouTube set up in the in the workshop so you you know you get to see get to see exactly how everything fits together so it's an incredible um, resource that that you guys are providing um, 
I really have fond memories of the auto line after hours episode when Sandy first came on after the initial Model 3 teardown. Um, and for, for people listening, the, the, the teardown is, is a full di- disassembly of, of the car. You guys analyze, you basically pull apart the car and you analyze each component. You figure out how it's made, the materials, the cost, all that kind of stuff. Um, you kind of reverse engineer the, the vehicle. Is that, is that right? Yeah, that is right. And it's that type of analysis that gives our team the context to speak uh, from a different type of position. So a lot of times there'll be experts that you'll see on TV uh, about the automotive industry, and they may not actually have uh, the same level of contextual um, insight that our team has. And it's really what we're paid for. So OEMs uh, will pay us to come in and advise their teams and they're looking for the answer. They're not looking for reams of data. So there's other companies out there that do teardowns of 100 vehicles a year, maybe the leading 30 vehicles in the world. But just creating uh, large pools of data is worthless if you can't actually contextualize that into meaningful information or knowledge. And that's really what Monroe is in the business of. It's contextualizing uh, data into meaningful knowledge and um yeah the the um that uh, auto line episode that we were talking about I, I remember that that sandy was quite critical of the the uh the body gaps and and some of the the i think he called like the um the traditional kind of part of automotive manufacturing but then he started pulling out the um the, the hardware three um chip and then the, the the computer and then the the magnets that go into the the uh the motor that that has the haulback effect and his eyes just lit up and he see you know saying that this is really incredible um technology um and i feel like that was a moment when it, it kind of transitioned when when legacy automotive um industry started to see what was actually happening at tesla yeah, and beyond just what we saw that day and that month, as you described those three things, so you described the magnet, the the chips, and um, something else, I forgot, but those have already been obsoleted by Tesla, so their rate of change is so much faster than other OEMs that they're no longer doing segmented magnets, which is a cost reduction. So early on, they may have seen the need to have the segmented magnets for the Hallback array, Hallback effect. They no longer do that. And then the um, the hardware 2.5 that was actually on that Model 3 has been replaced by, been replaced by hardware 3, which has now been replaced by hardware uh, 4. And not only has hardware four replaced hardware three, they're now releasing Teslas with their Gen 4 uh, RDU, rear drive unit. So if you look at a new Model Y today, there isn't near, there's barely anything that is common with a Model 3 from 2017. It has a structural battery pack using 4680s, no threaded fasteners in the battery. Um, it has a Gen 4 rear drive unit which although similar architecturally has a different inverter. It has a refined gearbox, a refined uh, uh, motor with the hairpins. 
the the form factor and the shape and the geometry remains almost unchanged, but the it's a new unit. And then um, the hardware four with the reduction of radar and ultrasonic sensors. All of these things are done to help refine the business case for Tesla moving forward while maintaining the core elements that serve the client. So the client being the customer. Their client is also the shareholders. So balancing shareholder uh, satisfaction, essentially Tesla remaining a profitable company, having enough cash reserves to continually invest in expansion by building new plants all over the world, and keeping the piece, piece price low enough where you can sell the vehicle at a price point that is competitive while still uh, preserving some semblance of a profit margin. So when, when you talk about Tesla, uh, many of the things that were five to seven years ahead of the competition in 2018 are already obsolete. And what they're rolling out in the Model 3 and the Model Y are all changed, but all changed for the better. So this rapid rate of change is, is quite impressive um, compared to what we've seen from other OEMs that will typically launch a platform and remain and, and keep it, you know, in general unchanged for anywhere from four and a half to eight years. You look at some GM platforms, GMT 800, GMT 900, K2XX, and T1. Those are typically six and a half to eight year uh, runs from 1999 to 2007, 2007 to 2015, 2015 to 2020, uh, 21, and then 2021 until the current year for the large truck program. So Monroe studies internal combustion engine platforms, and we have for years, and the fact that Tesla's changing so much gives us a lot of vehicles to review. Rarely do we buy the same vehicle twice in a matter of two years. But in March of 2020, we bought a Model Y. And then in July of 2022, we bought another Model Y because the 4680s and the giga castings in the rear changed so much that we had to essentially do it to update our data. Yeah, wow, that's, yeah, that's, that's really in incredible. And so, so what is it? Um, what is it that enables Tesla to get that really tight uh, feedback loop is is there something fundamental in the structure of the company in the the way the factories are laid out the communication between engineers and and workers or yeah what what enables that tight feedback loop so for my assessment i believe tesla is a flat organization compared to some of the rigid hierarchical structures of traditional oems also, the reliance on the supply base for engineering efforts is much less. So a large OEM will typically rely on their suppliers to do heavy lifting when it comes to the engineering development of thermal systems, of battery systems, battery modules, uh, seats, HVAC modules, instrument panels, door panels, sunroofs, headliners. Uh, and then an OEM really is a modern OEM is an integrator of supplied parts. They will then integrate this amalgamation of supplied parts and they have to package, they have to synergize, they need to make sure everything works together and communicates together. And if you think of 
electrical architecture. Low voltage electrical architecture is very complicated when relying on multiple suppliers and Tesla is pushing to own all of their um, low voltage modules, meaning the modules that would control your doors, your lift gates, your seats. Um, and that's really important. So I think the main thing that allows Tesla to be able to move so quickly is they own a larger percentage of the design than a traditional OEM. If a traditional OEM doesn't own the design of the instrument panel, it's more difficult for them to go to that supplier and say, hey, we want to change the crosscar beam from steel to aluminum or from aluminum to overmolded aluminum or from overmolded aluminum to magnesium. But you look at the Model S over its lifetime, it took that transition. It went from welded steel to welded aluminum to overmolded aluminum. So they have made those changes over the course of six, seven, eight years uh, because they own a higher percentage of the design. And this is really laid out by Tesla and Tesla's team. If you watched Investor Day, they, they brought out all of the leaders of all their different groups and they talked about their role. And it goes beyond just the vehicle itself. They talk about how their software team develops software solutions uh, for the team to handle um, tasks that are typically handled by external third-party software providers. So they're developing their own software solutions to support their internal teams, which then makes the machine that makes the machine more efficient. And by the machine that makes the machine, I'm talking about the company as the machine uh, with people and software solutions. Yeah, it's it's taking um, vertical integration to a whole new level, really. Um, and yeah, it um, reminds me of the conversation from a couple of weeks ago between um, Robert Llewellyn and, and Jim Farley. Uh, so R Robert Llewellyn from uh, Fully Charged um, had Ford CEO on, and he, yeah. he spoke about um, what, you, what you've just been, been talking about. And he's basically saying, you know, they got like a, um, a hundred, I don't know if it was actually this much, but 150 different modules, and um, each one has different software and Ford has to try to get all them to, to talk to each other. Um, but he, he seems to acknowledge the, mm -hmm. the problem that, that um, Legacy Auto is facing. Um, so in that respect, he's a little bit ahead of, of, of some of the other CEOs, I, I, I would think. Um, do you think that Legacy Auto companies like Ford are gonna be able to make that, that transition? I think they are. Um, and there's some that are more agile than others. I give Jim Farley a lot of credit. He's been in our building. Um, he's talked to Sandy and I multiple times, and I can talk about that because it's public. He's, he's been on our YouTube channel. We had a, an hour long sit down with him that was released about a year ago. And in that he, Jim Farley and Doug Field actually said, this is where we come to learn. And he, they were sitting inside of our Monroe building and behind them was an F-150 Lightning completely tore down. And uh, many people, hundreds, I think over a hundred thousand people watched that interview and not one person commented like, oh my God, look, that's a completely tore down uh, F-150 Lightning behind Sandy Monroe and Jim Farley and no one could like actually extrapolate that we've 
A, had one, B, it's tore down, and C, it just got released. So for us to be that far, we must have received it more than a couple days ago. So even though Jim Farley was delivering an F-150 Lightning, we already had one. So there was a lot of, you know, kind of hidden message in that interview that no one got. And we, we'd carefully staged everything so that people could draw that conclusion, but they didn't draw that conclusion. So, so the more humble a leader is in recognizing that, that just because you're a large OEM doesn't mean you'll be able to just crush the little bug of Tesla. Um, it, it's, it's better. And seeing Mary Barra actually say Elon Musk's name and being on uh, spaces with him, announcing that they're going to use the NACS uh, charge standard, that's a big step forward because I've seen her being interviewed on Bloomberg where the interviewer would ask something about Tesla or their lead or whatever, and she would sidestep the question and respond talking just about General Motors and not even really addressing the question. So um, humility is a, a really good trait when you're a large OEM that has significant sales and understanding that you may need to swallow some pride and change how you do things to survive moving forward. Yeah, I um, <clears throat> I thought that was pretty incredible news when we heard that Ford um, will be changing to the NACS uh, charger. We 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 have the um, we have the um, CCS two. Well, the te Teslas here use CCS two, so we don't have the NACS uh, in Australia, but. Um, yeah, I thought that was quite quite remarkable when when Ford decided to switch over and and really would would you say that like the last month the, the, these these huge OEMs um, kind of lining up and saying yep we're going to get on board with it would you say that this has been a really seminal kind of moment in in the industry? Yeah, yeah, and and it's not that CCS one or two is that bad. I mean, I drove a Mach-E across the state of Michigan this weekend and I pulled up and charged and was it that big of a deal that I had to grab a slightly heavier cord and plug it in? No. I mean, is the Tesla plug easier? Yes. So it's like slightly easier, but the big advantage is not the connector itself. It's the ecosystem and the fact that I can pull up to a Tesla charger. There's no screen. I don't have to touch a touch screen or pull my wallet out or get a phone out or get an app out or unlock a, a, uh, a magic dock or there's like all these steps. I want zero steps besides backing my vehicle up or driving it in and plugging it in and having the vehicle talk to the post and knowing that my credit card's on file somewhere and it'll start charging at the perfect rate. And you know, that's not the case with this fragmented uh, charging infrastructure. Many of the different charging suppliers in the United States and all over the world have very different approaches to the user interface, the screen size, the credit card readers and whatnot. And it just, the fact that there's any uncertainty involved with uh, the charging process or variability give some people anxiety and makes it gave me some anxiety as I'm driving. I'm just like, well, I don't know where I'm charging. I didn't know if there's going to be two chargers at a location or four or six or 10. And I get 
to a charge point, and there's only two. I got to an Electrify America on the way back, and there was four, and one of them wasn't working, and my car didn't precondition. So I think it's – so the I know the stories like NACS versus CCS. I actually could care less about the plug. I more I'm more intimately concerned with – the user experience and the ease of use at the Tesla stations and the amount and prevalence prevalence of them throughout the United States and the fact that they're implementing them at a much higher rate. So quantity and quality are both quantity and quality are both leading for Tesla. And so not only are there less of the other ones, there may actually be slightly more in total, but it seems like less. Um, as a whole, the Tesla network is really phenomenal in the United States. And if now, uh, with other OEMs using them, Tesla can probably justify spending even more money to roll out tens upon tens of thousands more chargers and thousands of more locations in the next year or two to make it even better. Yeah, it's really it's really the overall package, the whole the whole system that that comes with the the supercharging network, which which is a real um, I think it's a real game changer and has enabled a lot, a lot of people who um, would never have considered an EV that just the sheer reliability, uh, the peace of mind of having that network um, gets a lot of people over the line. I know for myself, when I'm in a Tesla, there's, yeah. you got a lot more confidence when you can see that map and you can see all the, all the stops and, and you know exactly how long you got to take at each one. So um, yeah, it's definitely a big, uh, big confidence booster. Um, I wanted to ask um, another question about um, legacy automotive business model compared to to Tesla's business model. And we heard a little bit about this during, I think, the the most recent earnings call, um, which is a while back now. But basically, Musk was saying that Tesla can essentially sell their vehicles for zero margin um, and um, then make profit off the off the subscriptions, the software subscriptions. And he was kind of comparing it to legacy auto business model where you, 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 might, you might sell a vehicle for, for slim margins, but then the company will make money off servicing and, and spare parts over, over the long run. Um, yeah, would you mind commenting on that a little bit? And, um, and is, is, there, is there a difference in incentive on how the vehicle's designed? Um, is one designed for longevity over, over another? Yeah, that's a great point. So in the automotive industry, when you're designing a vehicle, you can either design for serviceability or reliability, but choosing both is a dangerous proposition. And what I mean by that is if you design a battery pack, the whole pack, and you want there to be any serviceability, you have to introduce a myriad of fasteners and access points and protections for the potential service in the future. And what I mean by that is if you look at a BMW i3, that pack, when we took it apart, you could very carefully, very easily remove the lid with threaded fasteners. It was not glued on. It wasn't foamed in place. The lid came off. Then when you're looking at the modules, all the modules had wires connecting each to the each to the next, to the next, to the next. You could very easily remove the orange wire. It was protected, it was shielded, and there was even a spot 
to place the connector, a little holding, kind of like when you take your fuel cap off in a vehicle, sometimes there's a spot for it to hang, like on the door of the fuel door. That's how much thought that they had put into serviceability. Then you could very carefully access four bolts to remove each module. Every step in operation that I just described adds added risk for failure. The most common failure points uh, in any system are the fasteners. So in Six Sigma, if you're studying quality and quality issues, if you're going to have a failure, it's going to be a failure at a fastening point. A spring uh, fasteners, springs, and belts are number one drivers of quality issues. And in each additional part you add to a system, you add you introduce even more opportunity for error, even if it's one in a thousand, one in a hundred thousand, or one in a million. So when you're doing the quality assessment of an assembly. The more you can reduce the parts the, and the more solid you can secure everything together, the higher the quality. So when it comes to re- reliability versus serviceability, Tesla chooses reliability over serviceability. And that's why when we tore down the 4680 battery pack, it took us $30,000 worth of labor and effort and tools to deconstruct the 4680 pack because it was essentially glued together. It emulated the type of reliability that you see in a cell phone and almost no serviceability built in besides removing the entire pack itself. So it's not that it's not serviceable. It's that it's not serviceable on a micro level. You want to focus on macro level serviceability, but not micro level. So really, really interesting approach. And that allows them to drive the cost down in their vehicles because you're eliminating wasted fasteners and cost and effort. And uh, we've seen a huge drop in fastener count in Tesla's since the early days uh, by a factor of almost seven or eight. Uh, some of the early Tesla's had well over six or 700 fasteners. By fasteners, I mean types of fasteners, not total number, types. And now they're down around 100 or even below. So really impressive stuff. Yeah, wow. And I guess like there's there's so many trade-offs in, in automotive manufacturing, everything, every part, every decision, you're trading off um, one characteristic or attribute against against another. Um, so, yeah. So do, do you think that Tesla's overall, um, I know Tony Sieber says that um, electric vehicles are going to get, you know, 500,000 miles compared to 140,000 miles for ice vehicles and Sieber kind of makes the point or he's predicting that the overall uh, vehicle market the global vehicle market's actually going to drop significantly um, because of the the reliability of electric vehicles plus plus autonomy um, I'm keen to hear hear your thoughts about that do you have any predictions of where the what the global market's going to kind of look like once it, it's fully fully electric yeah I agree with that point uh, with one added factor. So, yes, there is the reliability. So the longer the vehicle lasts, the less likely someone's to purchase a vehicle or lease a vehicle every three to four years. So people will be holding on to their vehicles for longer. Yes, they will be lasting longer, but also they'll be more expensive. So I know that there's talk about a low-cost BEV, but really a battery electric vehicle that satisfies the current needs and desires of an internal combustion engine c- customer 
really should cost 35,000 to 50,000 US dollars because um, you can make a lower cost BEV, but it's not going to have the, you're going to have a trade-off, either that's range trade-off or size trade-off. It could be a very small vehicle. So in the United States, if you want a three-row SUV that can go on a 400-mile road trip easily, the solution really is charging infrastructure, not battery size. So there, we're at this weird point where vehicles have to have batteries that are very large in the United States to satisfy all these needs until the charging infrastructure gets to the point where the battery can be smaller and you can comfortably uh, drive an EV over longer mm -hmm. distances. So I think that added factor is the cost of the, co of the, the cost or the price of the vehicle uh, for the consumer, which will tamp dema demand down a little bit. Yeah, that's a really good point. Oh, and then another thing, the, the main driver behind uh, battery electric vehicles being able to last longer is very simple, and it comes down to thermodynamics. So an internal combustion engine wastes most of the energy in heat, vibration, and noise. So when you're wasting 60 or 70% of the energy in heat, vibration, and noise, that heat, vibration, and noise is causing a high temperature in the engine, wear in the oil, wear in the engine, a wear on your camshafts, your crankshafts, your pistons. It's also the heat in the exhaust system is expanding and contracting these high-cost uh, metals and materials in the catalytic converters and the emission systems, not as not only the emission systems for gasoline engines, but if you have a diesel engine, you have the DEF system. So a lot of the service associated and failures associated with inter internal combustion engine vehicles is related to the powertrain, the engine, the exhaust system, the fuel system, fuel pumps fail. And an electric vehicle, when you eliminate that vibration, you don't eliminate all of it, but you eliminate most of the vibration most of the heat, the very small amount of heat is generated in an electric motor compared to an internal combustion engine, you're not introducing that heat as energy destroying the vehicle through tiny vibrations and heat thermal, thermal expansion and contraction. So it's, it's you still have to worry about the normal wear and tear of road abuse, meaning just if you live on a dirt road that vibrates with potholes, you may have to service your suspension every 150,000 miles. And even brake wear is reduced uh, dramatically because of regenerative braking. And it gets to the point where BEVs will be able to last longer, but people will upgrade because they want new styling or new software. It'll mm -hmm. be the equivalent of having, if someone had an iPhone 7 right now and they walked in, <clears throat> I would look at them sideways and go, man, it's time for an upgrade. That thing still has a thumbprint reader, and they're like, what? It still works. I think that'll be the equivalent of driving a 10-year-old BEV. It still works, but it's like, don't you want the new one with the whatever new feature? Five-megapixel cameras. and Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, I have an iPhone 14 Pro, and when the 15 Pro comes out in October, I will have it because it's a tool that is an absolute uh, critical tool for me to function as the president of Monroe and Associates, whether that's filming uh, at a drop of a 
at a drop of a hat, I need to film sometimes for Sandy or I need to check my email. So the fact that the processor is just a tiny bit faster, the screen is a little bit better, the camera's a little bit better, I absolutely have to have those improvements every time. And then I, I, ha I give my old phone to my wife. So my wife always has a phone that's, you know, one behind. Um, but I think that's, that's the parallel I can draw is that people, w you know, just like people with old iPhones, people will be able to hold on to an old EV for quite a bit of time. It'll just be slightly outdated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's really interesting. And, and like j just what you mentioned before about the, the um, internal combustion engine, the, the amount of wear and tear, it's really an, an internal combustion engine drivetrain is really like a hellish environment um, yes. to design <laughs> design anything to withstand, I guess. Um, probably got about um, five minutes to go. So I just had a couple more questions to, to finish off. Um, have you guys um, done much with any Chinese OEMs to, to compare or recently like where they're at? Have, have you toured any factories or uh, taken a look at their technology? Sandy and I have not been to China recently, but Sandy spent a significant amount of time in China from 2015 to 2019. He would visit every year. Uh, we had worked with some clients in that time period as they were kind of ramping up their automotive industry, doing lots of training, uh, training on design philosophy, our lean design training and, and whatnot. We have assessed many electric Chinese electric vehicles over the past like three or four years, but more at an arm's length. We currently have one Chinese vehicle in our possession. It's an Imperium Skywell, which is a really low, low rated EV, and it's still pretty decent. And we've had a lot of requests to do BYDs. So we are considering doing a teardown of a BYD in the near future if we can get our hands on one. But <laughs> the Chinese... Vehicles are penetrating the European market right now because they're not hindered by our high import tariffs of 28%. So, and they have their own uh, market to deal with. Uh, there's a huge demand for vehicles in the Chinese market alone. So between China and Europe, that's where they're focused. And uh, it may be a matter of time before uh, Chinese vehicles might have to fill a gap of demand in the United States if mm -hmm. the large OEMs can't ramp up fast enough. Yeah, I think BYD ninety something like ninety percent of their sales is still in the Chinese market, so they're not they're they're really not exporting that much yet. That yeah, yep. as you say, they're doing a bit to Europe, but um, yeah, um, and maybe just one more one more question to finish off on. Um, keen to to hear your thoughts on on what the the key technologies were well, specifically in Tesla, because that's that's mainly what you guys look at. So what what are the what are the really exciting um, technologies in design or in manufacturing that we're going to see in the next couple of years coming coming from Tesla? Yeah, it, it's at Investor Day, they talked about the unboxed assembly process uh, for their next-gen small vehicle. I think it's going to be small. And that is a massive paradigm shift in how vehicles are built. So if they're able to master a new method of building vehicles, not just electric vehicles, a new method of building vehicles, that will give them a massive advantage in cost. 
because manufacturing is very difficult to squeeze pennies of cost out of because when you're balancing the line station to station, uh, you want to take into account the ergonomics and the safety of your workers. So it gets to a point where you have to um, understand that it takes a change, a total change in how the vehicle is assembled where, and then they showed they're going to have the large front module, the rear module, the two body sides, the battery, and then bring it all together at the end. So just the savings in the paint shop alone by reducing the, the geometric footprint of the body. Now that you're sending the pieces through one at a time, there's probably a 20 to 40% savings in paint costs alone. And the paint shop, the size of the paint shop from an investment perspective oftentimes could be hundreds of millions or even a billion dollars to build a, a modern paint shop. They'll now be able to reduce that. And what this means for a consumer and what it means for an investor is that now a Tesla is wasting less money producing the vehicle. They're using less square footage to produce a vehicle and they're even uh, polluting less. I mean, not saying you're polluting, you capture a lot of the paint shop, but the solvents and whatnot. So it's a race to achieve the goal of producing vehicles with the smallest amount of effort and impact to the environment so that we can have more people driving electric vehicles. And I think Tesla is winning that race through their different thinking and how hard they're pushing and not being satisfied with the status quo. They could have stopped at the Model 3 and Model Y and started just making those as fast as they could, but they continue to pull cost out and make changes. And now the next-gen vehicles will be really excited to see what those look like. Yeah, I think it's going to be going to be incredible to see the the third-generation platform vehicles when, when they come out. I'm, I'm really excited about that as well. Um, well, we, we better wrap it up now, Corey. But thank you very much for your for your time today. It's been been fantastic um, chatting chatting with you. And um, maybe if, if you can just let our listeners know where if, if they're if they're interested to um, to see some of some more stuff from Munro and Associates. Um, what's what's the name of your YouTube again? Yeah. So the YouTube is Munro Live, and that's M U N R O Live. And you can also follow Sandy and I on Twitter. Um, we have Monroe Live Twitter. And then my, my Twitter handle is at Corey Steuben and Sandy's is at Teardown Titan. So we post very often on our, on our Twitter as we're traveling, as we're uh, at different battery plants or manufacturing plants. So if you want like a real-time stream, follow the Twitter. And we also post some videos on there as well. And if you're looking for long-term, long, uh, form content and teardown uh, videos. Uh, that's we put those on YouTube. Fantastic! Yeah, I, I highly recommend uh, to any um, EV buffs out there. If you if you want to see inside the guts of, um, of of a Tesla, then then go go back and yep. check out some of the some of the videos. Yeah, yeah, great. Thanks very much, Corey. Appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate it. And that was uh, Corey Stephen uh, from Monroe Associates talking to Dan. Uh, Dan, look at pretty interesting stuff. I guess sort of confirmation really that um, the EV transition. Um, yeah, I, I guess the old, you know, the, the old auto industry just struggled to get its mind around electrics. But with the Teslas and now some of the other good cars being produced by other companies, there's just basically no competition. There's just yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. And and I think back in 2018, when when uh, Munro and Associates really came to fame in the EV community, um, there was a lot of focus on, at the time on panel gaps and the the some of the manufacturing difficulties that Tesla was having in in the traditional side of manufacturing. Um, but but not many people were really looking at the the computing power or the autonomous driving and and whatnot these new technologies. Couldn't see the wood for the trees, and um, I think um, that's still the case for some of the big motor companies, isn't it? Yeah, that's that's right. Um, I think some some big companies are struggling. We've got, however, we're starting to see some good signs from um, from companies like Ford. We know um, Ford CEO Jim Farley has been been um, um, restructuring the, their business recently, and that you know they've, we we did a story last week talking about how Ford has is now going to the NACS, the NACS uh, charging standard, which Tesla kind of pioneered. Um, so they're they're going to be opening up um, um, the Tesla charging network in the US to to Ford electric vehicles, and then GM followed suit. So we're starting to see a bit of coalescence around around a standard over there. Yeah, I was actually looking to, at, a, at a report from uh, Morgan Stanley's Adam Jonas too, and he was just sort of pointing out the significance of this, and just sort of pointing, you know, that um, you know, Tesla's dominance of the um, of the charging network and its deals with sort of GM and Ford just puts it in a really unique position. I mean, sort of dominating the market, um, the charging market, and the way that it's come to dominate um, the EV um, car market. So um, fascinating stuff. So while we're seeing sort of evidence of them going forward, um, the, the news from Toyota was just as bleak as it um, has been. There was a shareholder vote to try and sort of force some acknowledgement of the climate lobbying and, um, and, and try to urge them to sort of accelerate their push to electric, but uh, nothing much came of it. Yeah, it's not really surprising, um, Giles, unfortunately. And um, I mean, it was, it was great to see this shareholder group, which was basically made up, I think, there was three large pension funds um, from from Denmark, Norway, and the Netherlands, which I think collectively they own around four hundred million dollars of of Toyota stock. And a couple of months, they pr put forward a share a shareholder proposal that Toyota uh, should start reporting on its uh, or an, should provide an annual report on its on its on its lobbying um, around climate change and. To open up transparency around around what what the company is actually doing um, in in its lobbying efforts, and um, yeah. apparently this well, is the first. <laughs> but, but basically, everyone knows what they're doing. They just want to admit it. Well, that's it. Yeah, I mean, we all we all know what they're doing. It's it's just got to. I think I think that this shareholder proposal they're trying to promote that transparency within the company, um, and uh, apparently it was the first shareholder proposal. At Toyota in, in something like two decades, so it was a pretty pretty big deal. But unfortunately, it was uh, as you say, it was voted down. Mm. I'm just noticing um, some new data coming out from the from Europe. Um, I think there were zero hydrogen cars sold in Europe in the last 
<laughs> really? Wow. <laughs> and, and, oh, so Japanese industry just will bet the house on it. And um, zero is not very many. In fact, wow. it's less than one. So it's, going, go. it's gone from um, like five down to zero now or something, whatever it was. I think there's a declining market anyway. Yeah. Hey, look, the good news. Um, in Australia, we've just seen this big surge in, in interest in EVs. Um, and it's been pretty hard to get any sort of EVs over the last couple of years and basically impossible to find an EV um, below the cost of $50,000. And yet this week we have heard MG with their new MG4, which is kind of like a little small little hatchback, um, electric hatchback will be priced at $38,990, I think it is. That is before on-roads, but also before rebates. So maybe you sort of stick a few taxes on it and then take some off because of the rebates in various states. Um, so that's the, basically the first sub $40,000 car. Um, Dan, um, it's a much needed addition to the market. Absolutely, I think this is uh, this is incredible to, to get an electric, a brand new electric vehicle for for under forty thousand dollars, and um, and I think once once people start uh, d you know getting their spreadsheets out and uh, figuring out the the fuel savings, the maintenance savings, um, it's just becoming a no brainer now. What you know, why would you even buy a why would you buy a thirty thousand dollar petrol car when you can when you can get a a $40,000 electric vehicle and save thousands and thousands of dollars on, on petrol. Yeah, and I guess what we're seeing also is um, a bit of competition in the market too because BYD um, this week, and we've just recorded a, pro, uh, a podcast just a bit before their announcement, they're going to price the Dolphin, which is their sort of smaller version of the successful Atto 3, but it doesn't sound like uh, maybe the sort of the stand, the, 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 the entry base model might come in around 45, we're yet to see, just based on the New Zealand pricing, but um, MG kind of sort of stole their thunder and sort of came in with $40,000, and that's really good, because I reckon that's probably almost the first bit of active real competition in the market on the pricing thing, so um, may that continue? Yeah, it, that that's going to be really fascinating to see now uh, what the response is from from BYD and um, yeah, as you say, it, I think it's going to well, it's going to drive um, some strong competition. And let's hope also that um, MG are able to bring many into the market because um, I can see a huge amount of demand. And just that, as a as a point of observation, I think that base model still has a range of about 350 kilometres, um, not in a straight line on the freeway, of course. It's probably going to be closer to 200, 250, but 350 kilometres pottering around town. So that's um, that's more than enough, really, for sort of um, daily um, and even weekly driving. So. Um, that's a um, that's a pretty good initiative, and they've got other models which cost more and can go further or whatever, and probably got a bit more luxuri luxurious um, additions to it. But anyway, look, thanks for that, Daniel. Um, thanks for the interview with um, Corey Steuben. Um, great stuff, and um, thanks also to everyone out there, the listeners, of course, our sponsors, Inrma, and uh, we'll be back with another edition of the Driven Podcast in a fortnight's time. Bye for now. The Driven Podcast was brought to you by the NRMA, who are leading the charge in helping Australians transition to electric vehicles. The NRMA offers advice, online communities and EV loans to help drivers at every stage of their electric vehicle journey. And with their ever-expanding regional fast charging network, the NRMA is committed to ensuring all communities remain connected.